We're looking at verses 41 through 47 of Acts chapter 2. Turn with me there in your Bible. Whether I hear rustle of pages or not. I'm starting to catch on. So Acts chapter 2, 41 through 47, which reads... Hear the word of the Lord. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized, and the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Whew. That would definitely fill this place to overflowing. <laughs> All the tables out there, too, and maybe sitting on the grass outside. And they continued steadfastly. This is the remarkable part. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and the breaking of bread and in prayers. And fear came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles or their miracles. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we thank you for the first Christian church. What a marvelous and glorious start what a marvelous send-off into the world to have this church an active and vibrant and alive church from which would issue its first missionaries that would traverse the world even to the uttermost part of the earth lord how we pray that you would work again in this way. And we know that we are not the only ones that desire this. Lord, show us by such a good and godly example how your church, your church, every one of your churches should be, including ours. In Jesus' name, amen. This is not the first church and the word church, by the way, ecclesia, means the called out ones, the called out people of God, called out from the world. For as long as there has been even a remnant of true believers, there's been a church. Begin with our first parents and their children. In the book of Acts, chapter 738, it speaks about the church in the wilderness. <laughs> Just so that we have, don't have a misconception that the church only started or began in Jerusalem at Pentecost. So it says in Acts chapter 7, verse 38, what? And this is he that was in the church in the wilderness with the angel 
which spake to him, Moses, in the Mount Sinai, and with our fathers, who received the lively oracles to give unto us. So, the church was alive and well, well before Pentecost. So the church at Pentecost was not the first church, but it is the first Christian church in that Jesus has finally come, the Messiah, Christ, and lived and died and rose again that he might save his people from their sins. Paul says in Ephesians, in speaking about Christ and his church, Christ also loved the church and gave himself for It's also called a community. I never really caught on to this until lately, and it isn't through a church like one of ours reformed, but through a Roman Catholic church, how they call their church a community. I like that, a community. <coughs> it's like the uh, mushrooms that I take. It's called community. It's got all the mushrooms in one. And so, how are we made part of this community, this church? And the answer is, by the work of the Holy Spirit. In 1 Corinthians 12, 13, it speaks about how we are baptized into the church. As we are baptized with water, we are baptized into the church of Jesus Christ, who is its head. And so, in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, Every word be established by two or three witnesses. For by one spirit we are all baptized into one body, whether we be Jews or Gentiles, whether it be bond or free, and have been all made to drink into one spirit. This is a spiritual body. Its authority, by the way, is a spiritual one based upon the teaching of the word, the power the authority of, the, of those whom God puts underneath him, the great shepherd of the sheep, in other words, to the under-shepherds of the flock, is the authority of the word and the spirit who applies the word savingly and efficaciously to our lives. And that is what took place at the beginning, at Pentecost, in the preaching of the apostle Peter, we cannot see the Holy Spirit, but we can see what the Holy Spirit produces in the lives of those to whom he comes with saving power. <clears throat> and what do we see? What do we see based upon our text in Acts chapter 2? What do we see that changes in the lives of these who are one time, who are one time Christ haters? As we established previously, how they were Christ haters. They hated Christ so much, they made sure that he was put on the cross and thus put away. Many of them were amongst those that cried out at his lynching, if we can call it that, uh, from one aspect or one angle. It was, it was like that. It was like a mob lynching. Crucify him, crucify him, away with him, away with this man being Christ lovers, loving Christ so much that they would repent of their sins and be baptized in his name. 
the very name that they hated, that they hated to hear preached, that they hated to hear testified by those of God's people who would talk about all the wonders, wonderful things that he has done, all the wonderful things that he has given, even eternal life through his giving up his life. What do we see then? We see a love for the means of grace found in verse 42. Notice, and I'll read again. And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine, that's the word of God, and fellowship, that's Christian fellowship, and in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Breaking of bread is really the love feast, the desire to manifest that fellowship by being together and eating together. And then later that would develop into the Lord's Supper. And in prayers, God's people are a praying people. How do you know that you're a Christian? If you're a praying person. If you're not a praying person, take another look, hard look in the mirror. Because a person that loves God is one who loves to be with God and with his people. And so the first is love for God's word. 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or teaching. Starting with the apostle Peter's preaching the word of God. And then at the end, his command to all who believe to repent and be baptized. And it says in 41 that they gladly received, then they that gladly received his word were baptized. In other words, they did it. Can you imagine how many people were baptized? Can you imagine how much water that took to baptize all those people? And I'm not talking that they were all dunked in the Jordan River, because we've had a study of baptism. We know that dunking is not the mode of baptism, okay? Sprinkling. Sprinkling. It's always been sprinkling. Or pouring. The Holy Spirit was poured out upon Pentecost. Jesus poured out his blood. And it also says he sprinkled his people with his blood. So it started there with their receiving his word and they were being baptized in the name of Jesus. And at that same day were added unto them, oh, about 3,000 souls, plus or minus. Who would have known that this would be the outcome of the preaching of Peter? The one who, not long prior to that, was in fear, hiding for his life, and who when confronted by a young maid would deny the Lord to her face. Such cowardice. Yet what did the Lord say to Peter? Even prior to his doing this, his denying him three times, he said, Simon, Simon. And when the Lord comes to you and says, Simon, Simon, or Gil, Gil, you know he's got something important to tell you. In fact, probably to correct in your life. And so if I ever come to you and say, for example, Bill, Bill, you know that there's something important I have to say. Well, anyway, the Lord said, Behold, Simon, 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 behold, Satan hath desired to have you, to have you, not me, you, I mean, him have you, and not me have you, that he may sift you as wheat. You know that picture of someone doing that? That's a picture of 
taking possession, like, ah, oh, this is mine, you know, like silver and gold, you know, going through your, your fingers as you're, you know, doing this and relishing the moment of your richness. But then he says, but I have prayed for thee that your faith fail not in that day of adversity. And when thou art converted, go and strengthen thy brethren. In other words, keep serving me. Don't look back. Don't look back. You see, if God doesn't look back, if God doesn't look back at what you did and, and doesn't put it in your face again when you slip up again or when you stumble again and you fall again, why do we? When it is covered under the blood, it's gone. When it's cast into the depths of the seats, remember no more. When it's thrown as far away as the east is from the west, and God doesn't remember it, neither should we. And that's what he said, more or less, to our brother Peter. And so through the apostle, apostolic witness, which began, began with Peter, Jesus acquired more followers in one day than he did in all of his public ministry. Can you imagine that? So when he says that if you believe in me, he said this to all of them, according to the book of John. If you believe in me, the works that I shall do, greater works than these shall you do. That's what he's talking about. Not miracles and signs and wonders per se, but the miracle and sign of wonder of a new life, of a new soul that has been washed in the blood of the Lamb. And he says you will do greater works than these because I go to the Father. And so this is God's word changing lives. And this is why God's word is so appealing to the child of God. Because it's about the one he, he loves the most, who loves him the greatest. And truly, as someone says, the Bible is his love letter to his people. It's a story of his love and how he came from his home in glory to bring us back there to be his people. And that is why his people delight in the law of the Lord, like what we sang in the first uh, song. And in this law we meditate day and night. And the benefit of that, we, we are like trees that are planted by the rivers of water that bring forth fruit in its season. The leaf also shall not wither, but whatever he doeth shall prosper. And so is this you and me? Is this the church? Also, second, love for Christian fellowship. Verse 42 again, back at Acts 2. And they continued steadfastly in fellowship. And I throw this in, breaking of bread. As I said earlier, it is a manifestation of that fellowship. A manifestation of that fellowship. Because, I don't know about you, but I have to have food. Uh, <laughs> let me put it this way. When um, in the Middle East, you were a friend of someone, what does he do? He brings you to his home, to his family, and invites you to dinner, to sit with him, and to eat together with him. That's what friends do, right? We, we do that too, right? We are a church family. If we can say we love God and not love our brother or even hate our brother, and oh my, it frightens me when I 
see brethren hating each other. And uh, being in my, in my position and in my circumstances, encountering this, uh, it just causes the hairs on my back, not that there are any hairs back there, but you know, they stand up as the saying goes. Because if you love God, you say you love God, but you don't love your brother. If you, if you love God whom you can't see, or you say you love God whom you can't see, and yet the one whom you can't see, you don't love, who is also a, a Christian, how can you love God? Or how can you say you love God? You see the contradiction? And, and hopefully it, it causes you, if you're the guilty party, to have your eyes open because this is a reality. And to be otherwise is a contradiction of your faith. And so this is why fellowship is so important because it is the way that we can come together. And sometimes, you know, it's interesting, and I do counseling, and I'm doing it even now. Um, but in counseling, one of the things that one must first do is after you talk to the individual parties who aren't talking to each other, who have their back turns, to, to turn to each other. You get to turn to each other and then to come to the table so that you're counseling them over. Now, if you could not reach that point with them, keep praying because until you do, you won't even get started. You won't even get to step one. You can counsel one, you can counsel the other and make a little bit of headway, but until you're able to get them both to the round table, I call it the round table because there's no head. You know, we're all equal, as it were. And I'm just a third party. So there's one party, there's two party, and there's the third party. And so when you can get them to the round table, that's when you will begin to see the work of the Spirit. And, and getting to that point, of course, is the work of the Spirit, too. Don't, don't get me wrong. But this is all part of why fellowship is so important. What a golden opportunity this is for us to see Christ in each other. And a lot of times, especially when two people have been talking to each other for years, and I didn't know I was going to be talking on this, by the way. <laughs> this is just coming up. Uh, but two people have been talking to each other for years. But somehow, by the grace of God, you get them to the table, and they start talking to each other. They begin to change. Hmm, I wonder why. You know why? I, I, I believe, in, and one reason why is because the one sees that Jesus is in the other. Oh, that's a surprise. I didn't know that. <laughs> and then the other sees that Jesus is in him or her. Wow, that's neat. And you, you start to see them talking to each other for the first time. You start to see two people who are sitting on opposite sides of the church, you know, opposite pews, actually sit at the same side, maybe even in the same pew, even next to each other. I've seen that. I've seen that. But a lot of times, fellowship is used by the Lord in such a way. And what a blessing back in that time for them to see Christ and to have their faith strengthened uh, as a community, getting back to that word. The blessings of the community found in verses 46 and 47 
which I'd like to reread. And they, continuing daily with one accord in the temple, that's one place where they would meet in the temple, and uh, they would go through uh, the formality of, uh, of uh, the Orthodox Jewish religion, but with one difference, and that is they have Christ. They're very Messiah. They're in their midst. Where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them, he says. And then breaking bread from house to house. Ever seen that? I remember for years we would go house to house, usually the four or five different homes. Every week we go to a different house to have our Wednesday night Bible study and fellowship and prayer. And what a blessing that was, not to mention people visiting each other, like uh, this progressive dinner thing, you know, I remember even as uh, uh, newly married, we would go, uh, the young married couples would go house to house trying different cuisines on, uh, on that progressive dinner occasion. And did eat their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. Wow. Praising God and having favor with all the people. Praise God. Like the blessing of the campouts that we've had too so far at Cleveland Lake and the bonfire last night, which oh, we really were sad to have missed. But we thank the Lord for uh, you all having a good time because we saw the pictures, Mark and I. And it's always a smorgasbord of fun, food, and fellowship. And that's, of course, because we love the brethren. And then breaking of bread, I want to speak briefly to that. And so the breaking of bread here is like the fellowship meal we eat during Sundays. And that is regularly taking in of food, but together. And you remember I called that the love feast? That's what they called it back then, the koinonia. And at first, uh, uh, that's all they had. And then as the church organized, they then began to have uh, more regular services and uh, that would include the preaching of the word, the uh, faithful administration of the sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper, and also the exercise of Christian discipline. It was all part of the true church, marks of the true church. So that would follow. But even in the Lord's Supper, fellowship was a significant component of it. Because when we partake, we do it together. It's not encouraged that people get the Lord's Supper in their homes, if, unless they absolutely can't make it. But it's encouraged that all participate as one. And so our fellowship is with Christ and his sufferings and death and with each other. Even as it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 16, the cup of blessing which we bless is it not the communion of the blood of Christ? There's our, our fellowship with Christ in his sufferings and death. The bread which we break, is it not the communion of the body of Christ? And that's, of course, the body that was broken for our sins. But connoted in that, in that word communion, is also the fellowship of the body of Christ, i.e., the church. That's borne out in the context. So 
we gather as the family of God to partake of that supper as a community. And then take another look back at Acts 2, verses 44 and 45. And all that believed were together and had all things common and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. Imagine that. Imagine the love and camaraderie that was there in this church that people who had would give to those who have not. And this, by the way, was one of the complaints of Paul and others, James, against the church was that those who have, when they had to give, wouldn't. But normally in Christ's church, when the Spirit of God is at work, those who are able give to those who are less able. And so they pool the resources, as it were. They pool the resources. That's why we uh, have, for example, tithes and offerings, and even have in the past collected what's called the deacon's fund for the needy, and would give to needy situations, and we have that available. Those who come amongst us who are not members of Christ Church that have a need. So that some able individuals would even sell goods like what people do on eBay. My son, uh, sons were really good at that kind of thing. I, I'm still not there yet. Uh, <laughs> I, have a lot of, I have a lot of stuff, including a boat that I can make a lot of money off and a, and a sports car. Uh, and I haven't done it yet. Anyway, some did that and others sold their properties like those who would, for example, deed their estate to the church. Have you heard that? Or to the seminary or to some worthy Christian cause. Again, why? That's the question. That's the purpose. Why? To help those in need. In fact, in the Bible, it says that why we work is not just to provide for ourselves, but even for those outside of ourselves and our immediate family who have needs. Where does it say that? And this comes to my mind, so here it is, Ephesians chapter 4. It says in verse 28, Let him that stole steal no more, but rather let him labor, working with his hands, the thing which is good, that he may have to give to him that needeth. See, there you go. There you go. So there is an important reason for our working, and it's not just for ourselves, but ultimately it is for the family of God. And ultimately, all who are in need. And so, that's why we should, that's why we should really stop and consider the significance of fellowship. Especially as in those times they were coming to a point in their history where you had the Jews and the Gentiles who were like this, now become part of the same body of Christ. And is that still an issue today? I would dare say so, wouldn't you? It still is. It still is. The world is just as divided as it's ever been. But is the solution any different than what it was in the first century? Nope. Nope. What an example this was. This experience. This revival, if you want to call it that. What an example for the church today. 
And that's why we're studying it. I'm glad we are. A close and loving church they were. And today, if, if yours is a close and loving church, guess what? You're an example in the envy of many. Yes, yes. When people uh, go to churches and they're not received, and I've experienced that, and you know, I, I come there, you know, uh, maybe it's because I'm a pastor and I, and I visit and they know, oh, he's a pastor, so you know, he's okay. <laughs> he doesn't need any, any, well, not any fellowship, but you know, we can, we can focus on the people that really need uh, our one another, okay? But I don't think so because sometimes I go to a totally different church where I'm not known and I get that kind of treatment that we all like are this about, you know, like, are they going to accept me or reject me? And uh, maybe not that, but uh, am I going to be warmly received or not? That might be more accurate. And so I'm not warmly received. And I imagine what, what the Lord is like. I remember one pastor. It was the pastor of a former pastor when he was at seminary. And he would go to this huge church. And the pastor of that huge church would hide behind a pillar or, you know, column. And would listen to the people talking. <laughs> I remember this because it struck me how... He was observing how his congregation was. So he, he knew what at least one of the needs were of his congregation. And perhaps it was this very thing. And that is the need for them to be one another in themselves. Sadly, many go through life like the Lone Ranger without a family around, right? You know some who are single, for example, and they're getting older, they're still single. And so they're like the Lone Ranger. Maybe they have a, a tanto, a tanto uh, somewhere, but maybe not, you know, and even if it's a tanto, it's not someone who's going to be there for you on your deathbed, let's, let's just say, or on your sickbed, maybe on your, and maybe not on your deathbed. But if you're a believer who has confessed his faith in Christ, and is baptized into the local body of Christ, guess what? Even if you don't have that flesh and blood family, you have the family of God. And I've seen this as well, even in our own congregation. It's not the same, quite the same as a flesh and blood family uh, in terms of what very specific needs can be provided for by your own kith and kin, as we would say. But I'll tell you what, they care for you, and they love you. It's like the Lord loves them, and will do their best to be there for you when you're in need of a helping hand. There's a hymn, and you're familiar with it, I'll just read it for you. Blessed be the ties that bind our hearts in Christian love, the fellowship of kindred minds is like to that above. Before our Father's throne, we pour our ardent prayers, our fears, our hopes, our aims, our one, our comforts, and our cares. We share our mutual woes, our mutual burdens bear, and often for each other flows the sympathizing tear. And sometimes more than sympathizing, sometimes empathizing, meaning 
I've been there, I know what you're going through, and I'm here for you. And there's nothing better than that. And especially when we think about how our Lord is just that. He was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. And yet there he was and is for his church, his people. So is this you and I? And lastly, but not leastly, love for prayer. It says in 42 of our passage in Acts chapter 2, what? I'll reread it. <clears throat> and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship and in breaking of bread and in prayers. God's people are praying people, as I said from the get-go, right? And also from the get-go of Scripture in Genesis 4, 26, this is how the covenant people were recognized as such. In Genesis 4, 26, at the birth and life and service of one of Adam and Eve's sons, Seth, who replaced who? Abel, who was murdered by his brother Cain. And to Seth, to him also, there was born a son, and he called his name Enos. Then began men to call upon the name of the Lord. And so we begin to see the formation of the church way, way back at the get-go of history. J.C. Ryle said the following, and you might recall in having read this earlier in uh, those uh, readings that I've produced for the bulletin, for edification. And he wrote, and I read, <coughs> And I say furthermore that all of all the evidences of the real work of the Spirit, a habit of hearty private prayer, and I emphasize hearty private prayer, is one of the most satisfactory that can be named. The Lord himself has set his stamp on prayer as the best proof of a true conversion. When he sent Ananias to Saul in Damascus, he gave him no other evidence of his change of heart than this. And what is it? Let's look this up in closing, and that's Acts 9.11. Acts 9.11. I'll read it at the very tail end, where it says, Saul of Tarsus, for behold, he prayeth. Behold, he prayed. That is the mark of true conversion. And boy, oh boy, did that set him apart because he was the one prior to that breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the way. And that's what Ananias thought he was going to do to him and to them of Damascus. And yet, what does he find instead? Praying man probably praying for the very first time, at least prayers that we know are heard from on high. And so is this you and me, you see. Because prayer is the lifeblood. Prayer is the breath of life of one who is truly saved by grace through faith in Christ the Lord. And oh, how the Lord blessed his church. Notice at the end of, of, of Acts 2, the very, very end of this passage that we have considered this morning. Acts chapter 2 beginning at 41 through 47. The very last 
complete sentence. And the Lord added to the church daily such as should be saved. Now we know that this was all of his sovereign grace. We know that this was all of God. But God uses means. The God of the ends is the God of the means. And does he not use his people to bring his people into his kingdom? Especially when there are people who are living according to the will of God. By this, our Lord says, shall all men know that you have, that you are my disciples and that you love me if you have love one for another. Is this you and me? Is this our church? Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we have so much, so much to glean from your word. We have so much to glean from the history of redemption. We have so much to glean from life experiences in your providence as you take us by the hand and lead us along the way, the way of eternal life, the straight and narrow way that leadeth unto life, that few there be who find. Lord, thank you for this again that refreshes our hope, that gives us a new lease on life, hopefully, as we consider what you, the Lord our God, is doing by what you have done in times past, and especially at this particular epoch of your history, of your redemption. And you ask that, Lord, you would bless your church today, that you would begin to bless your church by working in each one of us to be our utmost, as one coined the title of his book, that we might be the utmost for the highest. In Jesus' name.